Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Well, this is a uh, this is a shock, and I think that. Uh, uh, I think for many of us, this is a kind of a, a day of, of uh, digesting. And I know that a lot of people are not here that I think would have been here otherwise. I think a lot of people are sort of taking this day of uh, uh, to regather themselves, and I can certainly understand it. But I'm very glad all of you are here. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Colin Jones. I'm one of the officers of the Student Public Service Collaborative, and uh, this event is... Uh, um, part of our public service week, which is this week. Um, and so the um, SPSC is basically the service center here. We've done all sorts of community projects, working in schools, bringing students here. Uh, we're doing community gardening. We've done all sorts of different community partnerships this year. Um, and so um, there's a lot of, there's a host of other great things coming up this week. There's a day of service on Friday. I hope everyone can be a part of that if you haven't heard about it. Um, and all this stuff is um, hks.harvard.edu slash public service has the full list of things. Um, and I'll pass these around uh, just to spread awareness. I think maybe some people, in addition to the events, there's also finals and other things that are competing. So if we can help spread the word, um, I'll pass around uh, some of these stickers. But thanks, thanks everyone, for coming. Right. Can you give us an idea of a couple of the things you all are doing? Yeah. So um, so tomorrow there will be a talk with Marshall Gans, on, um, and that's 3.30 to 4.30 on how we can have, an, it's called making an environmental impact on the ground, so how can we as a community have a positive impact on sustainability. Uh, Thursday, there'll be um, from 6 to 9 in Allison, there'll be a uh, public, uh, sorry, it's diverse uh, careers in public service, so that's a networking event, free food, free wine, those kind of things. <laughs> um, and then Friday, throughout the day is the day of service. We have a lot of great projects, so um, Action for Boston Community Development is a, a day-long project where students and whoever volunteers will be helping uh, low-income immigrants from Boston apply for citizenship. We have two projects with the Cradles for Crans factory where we'll be packaging up uh, toy packs. I, I had a chance to do that while I was in AmeriCorps, and so I'm looking forward to doing it again. Um, we have, uh, we're going to the Food Bank on Friday. Um, there's also a talk on international development and so on Friday and how to scale with, um, with development programs. So there's a whole host of things, and uh, I will just actually I'll pass these around because it has the website on it. Okay, great. So, Thanks. Well, thank you. Thank and you. Uh, it's quite appropriate today that uh, our guest uh, is one of the people who is genuinely uh, a catalyst for positive change uh, and, a, and a sort of inspiring leader of the effort to, uh, to create social entrepreneurial ventures that really benefit the common good. Uh, Alan Casey is co-founder of City Year, founder of uh, Be the Change. Uh, I don't think I need to introduce him to this group. Uh, but I know that on this particular day, um, he is, um, things are on his mind relative to what happened yesterday as it applies to the kinds of things that he does and the kinds of things I'm sure you're interested in. Uh, he wants to start with uh, a bit of a reflection and, and uh, a acknowledgement about what happened yesterday, and then we will go on with our traditional format of, of uh, him speaking, and then we will have questioning after. 
Alex, we're very glad you're here. Sure, Alex, thank you so much, and thank you for uh, welcoming me and, and hosting me at the Shorenstein Center. Uh, it's great to be back here at Harvard. It's great to be here in particular. Uh, there's so many wonderful people affiliated with the Shorenstein Center and so many great events. I wish I could partake in, in all of them. Um, I'm here back at Harvard teaching this semester, um, and it's great to be back here. I'm teaching on uh, public service, social entrepreneurship, uh, systems and policy change, and what I like to call action tanking. Um, which is what I want to talk about today. Um, but as Alex said, uh, yeah, I did want to share an, an, the, some reflections, and I really appreciate this as Public Service Week, and appreciate your, were you in VISTA? I was in or, VISTA, yeah. and then also State AmeriCorps through Citizen Schools for two years. Oh, well, I, I, I was I on the- I ran into Allen at Service Nation in yes. 2009, and okay. I was finishing my first year of AmeriCorps. That propelled me a little bit to do three more after that. That's so great. Um, <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. And uh, I love Citizen Schools. I was on the founding boards for 10 years. Uh, Eric Schwartz worked with me at City Year before he started Citizen Schools. And um, and I just love that the Kennedy School is, is doing a whole week dedicated to public service and all the events that are being organized. Um, and, you know, yesterday, uh, horrific tragedy. I learned this morning that the eight-year-old boy that was killed uh, was a, is a student, was a student at the Neighborhood House Charter School where City Year serves, and we've been serving for years, and actually, it was actually founded by good friends of mine. So we're all uh, affected by this. I mean, I have two young kids. My daughter's 10, my son's four, and I just rushed home. I was actually teaching yesterday when uh, this news came through and they evacuated the building. I had to cancel class, rushed home, and just hugged my kids, and, and we played Monopoly till way past their bedtime just to keep them distracted. But uh, we also saw, on days like this, the best of America. I mean, the stories of the first responders, the stories of people mm -hmm. rushing towards where the explosions ha happened so that they could get people freed from the debris that, that, that came. The nurses, the doctors. I saw a doctor on TV last night who started uh, his regular day doing surgery at 8 o'clock, and he was doing a news conference at 10.30 and had been in surgery, a trauma surgeon at MGH all day. Um, people opening their homes, I heard about to welcome runners who had no place to go, um, people rushing to, to, to give blood. Uh, and I think that's it's a reminder, whenever these tragedies happen, we saw it after 9-11, certainly I had thoughts of 9-11. I had a good friend who actually was on one of the planes, who, um, and her sister-in-law was running yesterday uh, to raise money. Um, and so I thought of that. But we saw it after 9-11, we saw it after Katrina, we saw it after the Indian Ocean tsunami, we saw it after Joplin, Missouri, we saw it recently after Newtown. These tragedies, um, always the, the innate spirit of people comes through. Um, and my life's been, as Alex said, about public service and trying to instill an ethic of service. And it's interesting to me that um, whenever you have one of these tragedies, that sort of takes over. People don't run away, they don't hide, they don't... Um, say, well, I'm okay, and just hunker down. They reach out. We reach out to each other. We care about each other. We love each other. People donate blood. They donate money. They want to donate time. They want to do something, take an action. Um, and so uh, I think somehow we have to recognize that spirit. I think it's just part of our human nature. That's what I've tried to dedicate my life to in terms of bringing about national service, and I want to talk a little about that today. Um, and I hope that uh, as we reflect on on what happened yesterday and how just horrific it is, um, we will also recognize what it brings out in all of us and somehow dedicate ourselves to capturing that 
and making it more real and more institutional. That's why I love the fact that the Kennedy School is doing this whole public service week. I, I hope that we will recommit ourselves to, to the idea of national service. And I want to just talk about that a little bit in, in my own journey and then talk about action tanking. And then I'd love to open it up for any conversation. Anybody else who wants to share a reflection? You know, it's, we can't. Um, things will be different. Um, I love this city, and uh, it is resilient, but things will be different um, going on. Uh, so my own journey in public service started with my folks. Uh, my father's an immigrant from Iran. Um, he's a doctor. He came here, uh, left a country of dictatorship, classic immigrant, um, came here in the 1950s, late 1950s. Uh, uh, he was a big believer in democracy and our ideals. That's what brought him to America, um, our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, what we stand for. He left a country of dictatorship for a country of freedom, and he raised me with a really interesting perspective, classic immigrant. This is the greatest country in the world, the only one he felt he could come to uh, and be embraced as, a, as, a, as an immigrant and as a citizen and make a difference and raise a family. Um, and he, he's still, he's going to be 85 years old. And he's just, just on the other, the other day, I was on the phone with him. He said, you know, Alan, this is the greatest country in the world. And he's been telling me that since I was a boy. Um, but he also raised me with a little bit of a, of, of a critical eye. My father's country, Iran, was moving towards democracy. Um, he was a big supporter of Mossadegh, and Mossadegh was overthrown by the British government and our CIA because of oil politics uh, in the region. And so he taught me about that when I was a little boy, before it became public. Um, he taught me about our supporting other dictators like uh, Somoza in Nicaragua and Marcos in the Philippines, not supporting Mandela in, in South Africa. Um, and he taught me that our country is so unique and at its best when we live up to our ideals. And when we don't live up to our ideals, we run into trouble. Um, my mother... Uh, uh, who was also a huge influence in my life. Uh, my father's a doctor, my mother was a nurse, they met in the hospital. Um, she was the classic Italian. She would fall in love with you over the phone. And if she were here, she'd hug and kiss every single one of you. She was also a little bit of a philosopher. One of her favorite sayings uh, was, you know, I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, Alex gets it. Uh, and, and when my father was more macro about democracy and our ideals and America and what it stands for in the world, uh, my mother was more micro. She was all about people. And my mother literally loved everyone. And she taught me that every single person has a gift to give and something unique and special to contribute. And you should try to see those gifts and bring them out in people and recognize them. And so when I first heard about this idea of national service, I was in high school. Uh, and uh, it was the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky, uh, Harvey Sloan, who came to speak and talked about national service and that there should be an opportunity for young people as a rite of passage to come together from all different backgrounds and spend a year in full-time service. Uh, and it just hit me because it sort of brought together what my dad had taught me about how you make democracy work and everybody being a big citizen and igniting those ideals. Well, my mother also taught me about each person having a chance to use their gifts and make a difference. So I sort of got just struck by this idea. And then the next fateful thing that happened to me was right here at Harvard on September 8, 1979. I was assigned to be roommates freshman year with Michael Brown. And uh, we became best friends, and we both sort of fell in love with this idea. And we both spent some time work. This was in the uh, uh, early 1980s. I was here as a freshman in 1979. And so we spent some time working in Washington. Uh, at that time, and there were a lot of people promoting the idea of national service. You know, Kennedy had launched it with... Well, FDR really with the Civilian Conservation Corps, and then Kennedy reignited it with his Ask Not Call in the Peace Corps, and then Johnson did VISTA. Uh, and people thought that it should be a federal program. That was, and so Mark and I both went to Washington. I worked for my congressperson, Norm DeMorris. He worked for then an unknown congressman just in his third term named Leon Panetta. And we worked to try and uh, uh, get a bill done. Leon had a bill 
to set up a commission just to study national service. Paul Songus, who was then the senator from Massachusetts, was the co-sponsor in the Senate. And it, was, it wasn't to create it, just to study it. Um, and Michael succeeded in getting a hearing held on that bill, and that's as far as it went. It was 1981. Ronald Reagan was president. There was nothing coming from the federal government. Uh, and so we came back and uh, uh, went to law school. And while we were in law school, we started learning about all these other programs out there. There were the Civilian Conservation Corps programs in California. City Volunteer Corps started in New York, and Michael went and spent a year working there. There was other programs bubbling up. And our thinking shifted. As we talked to people, people said, well, this sounds great, but how do you know it can work? You know, because we, we had studied the theory of national service, and it said it could be used to bring people together from different backgrounds and complete the civil rights movement. It could be used to solve problems. Young people could make a real difference. It could turn on people's justice nerves. All this great theory. And so as we talked to people, we realized that rather than starting from Washington, where nothing was happening, uh, there needed to be a model. There needed to be what we called an action tank. Our insight, our sort of theory of change was that people in a lot of people in think tanks in Washington had done all this studying about national service. There were books being written, papers being written, et cetera, about what it could do. And then there were these programs that were sort of bubbling up. And we said, you know what, we've got to actually demonstrate the theory by developing a model that could test the theory and put it into action, hence action tank. Sort of take the, what a think tank does around policy, but what a direct service program does in terms of demonstrating clear impact. And so we uh, decided we'd start City Year here in Boston. We wanted to show that young service could bring together people from all different backgrounds. So we had young people who had been former gang members and team moms working alongside Harvard graduates. Um, one of the issues was how do you pay for it? And so we went to the private sector and said, will you sponsor this? Uh, and not just write checks, but uh, sponsor teams and serve alongside young people in service. Uh, in fact, we started, uh, Wynn Knowlton, who was here then, running the Center for Business uh, and Government, introduced us to Ira Jackson, who had also been part of the founding of the Kennedy School. Uh, and the Bank of Boston became our first uh, corporate team sponsor. And a lot of the meetings we did initially was, were here at the Kennedy School, just borrowing rooms. Because um, I was in my uh, third year of law school as we were putting this together. So how do you pay for it? Can young people do anything of value? And so we went to the community and worked with public schools and community-based organizations and showed that even 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, people and my generation was branded the me generation. Um, people may remember the movie Wall Street, Greed is Good, we're yuppies. And we didn't believe that. We felt that our generation was ready to serve, that just there wasn't a president calling us to service the way Kennedy had in 1960. And so we wanted to show that young people would respond to a, a call to service. We wanted to show they could do things of value. So there was all these ideas that we wanted to test. And so we put City Year together. We were fortunate, uh, along with Ira, other companies stepped up and, and individual philanthropists stepped up. We were able to recruit 50 young people to start for a summer and then grew that to 50 full-time people. But from the beginning, our idea was, how do we leverage this tiny little organization to affect policy? Hence, sort of action tank. And we were fortunate because Senator Kennedy was the leading senator right here in Massachusetts, head of the, the Health Committee, the committee that authorizes all the, the uh, domestic service legislation, education, et cetera. And we reached out to him very early. And because of his commitment to public service and his families, he got very involved and, in fact, served as our first graduation speaker and then became a real champion of what we were doing. And he wrote the first national service law. President Bush had founded the first office of national service. Greg Petersmeyer was the director of that. He created the Points of Light Foundation. Uh, and Kennedy and Bush did the first legislation in a bipartisan way. It was the National Service Act of 1990 that created a commission 
Uh, and we played a role in that. Sidier was seen as sort of a model, and Kennedy wrote us in as, a, as, as part of what was a demonstration program. Uh, and that was a breakthrough. And uh, I grew up in New Hampshire, and so I knew the part of the New Hampshire primary. I'd spent a year between college and law school working for Gary Hart in 1984, who was the first senator to say as a presidential candidate, I'll create national service if I get elected. Uh, now, he wasn't elected, and that was also part of my own journey to realize this had to come from the bottom up, not the top down. But I knew that candidates would fly into Boston and then drive up to New Hampshire. So at that point, our office was in the Four Point Channel area, um, right outside of once you came out of Logan Airport. And so we invited all the candidates. And a fateful day, uh, Bill Clinton, who was a believer in national service, he'd read, he'd chaired the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Council, they'd put out a report on it. Um, and he'd heard about City Year. And people said, you know, you've got to go visit. There's actually a program that's doing this. You've got to go visit this. So in December of 1991, on a blistery cold day, Clinton came to visit. Uh, and he was at about 2 or 3% in the polls at that time, so he had some time on his hands. So he spent a few hours with us, uh, and he met uh, you know, with a round table, actually smaller than this, about eight core members. We had the mayor there. We had Hubie Jones, who's a pillar of the, of the local service community. And we had Mitt Romney, um, who Bain & Company was a supporter of City, and we wanted to show we weren't partisan. Um, and Clinton came in, and he took off his coat and listened and took a bunch of notes and asked a bunch of great questions, to the point by, at the end of that uh, gathering, he so impressed one of our core members named Stephen Spellos uh, that we had Sidier sweatshirts then with the big Sidier letters emblazoned that St Stephen took off his sweatshirt and handed it to then Governor Clinton and said, please don't forget about us. And Clinton responded, don't worry, I never will. <laughs> <laughs> and then he it's gave Stephen... <laughs> I've told this story a few times. Um, and he gave Stephen a big bear hug. And... Uh, and he said then, he said, you know, if I become president, I'm going to make this a national program. I've been so inspired today. And, you know, Clinton went on to campaign and was elected, and uh, we didn't hear from him during the course of the campaign. But then the day before Thanksgiving, after he was elected, this was just almost a year later, I was packing up, ready to go home. Michael had already uh, gone home to his, my, my folks lived in New Hampshire, Michael lived in Belmont, so he was already at his house. And I look up, and I have seen on, on in the background as I'm just packing up, and, you know, Wolf Blitzer comes on and says, you know, breaking news, President Clinton has just finished a jog, and he's doing a, a, a curbside press conference. So I look up, and there is Bill Clinton, President-elect, wearing Stephen Spallis' city or sweatshirt. And I'm in shock. My phone rings. I don't even say hello. I know it's Michael. And I just say, are you watching this? And he says, yes. He says, let's hang up so we don't miss anything. And so then Clinton does his thing. He goes on to say, well, my top four priorities of presidents, I want to um, get the economy moving. I want to balance the budget. I want to uh, create a health care program. And I want to create a new program for national service for young people to serve for a year and then get college scholarships. Uh, and then our phone started ringing off the hook. And at that point, Sidier was only a couple hundred uh, core members in Boston. Um, it was only 100 when Bill Clinton visited. And our phone started ringing off the hook, and Clinton kept wearing uh, Stephen's Sidier sweatshirt as he went jogging. Um, he was sending a message of what he cared about. And it got to the point where I became more interested in Bill Clinton's jogging schedule than his press conference schedule. Um, and then Eli Siegel, this is sort of a hand of fate. I met Eli when I was working for on the Heart Campaign in 84. Eli Siegel was tapped by President Clinton to create the National Service Program. He called me and said, I've got to come spend a couple of days with you. This isn't public yet, but the President just asked me to lead up the National <coughs> Service effort. Uh, 
And then we were very involved in helping to design AmeriCorps. The city wasn't the only program. There were others. There was Public Allies, Teach for America, Youth Build, Conservation Corps. But um, because we'd sort of established this action tank, uh, we were able to help influence the legislation where it was decentralized. It, AmeriCorps is a breakthrough idea. It's not one big federal program. It's, it's funded through the states and through nonprofits. Um, it requires matching funds. We launched it with all private funds. It requires matching funds. It uh, encourages diversity and having a diverse group of participants. It requires meeting real needs, as we demonstrated you could do. Um, and uh, it was a real breakthrough. And so uh, what we learned from that was that sort of this action tank theory of change can work. That if you think about a lot of people, and this is what I've been teaching on this semester, and what I tell every social entrepreneur and every nonprofit leader I meet, I ask, what's your action tank strategy? Meaning that a lot of organizations do direct service. They don't think about, where's the larger impact? And for us, uh, our goal was from the beginning not to create city year, that was part of the goal, but the bigger goal was how do you bring about a commitment to national service? to people, you know, we want to see a day, and this is our vision, one day the most commonly asked question of an 18-year-old is where are you going to serve? Because it's just become the thing to do, as opposed to where you're going to college or where you're going to work. Uh, and so what we've learned is that uh, there's a way to do this. You have to think about and dedicate time and energy to, if you're doing a direct service program, well, are you trying to connect it to policymakers? Um, do you have a visitor's program? We actually established a visitor's program. Bill Clinton was one of many people who visited. We just happened to be lucky that he became president. Uh, we worked with Senator Kennedy early on. We got Greg Petersmeyer to visit early on. Do you uh, write up a policy agenda? We actually were ready. Um, when Clinton was elected, we had a whole memo ready to go. Here's our recommendations as to what should be done. Do you build champions who can then help you uh, advocate for this? Um, when AmeriCorps got into trouble, uh, uh, we enlisted Mitt Romney and other Republicans that, that we'd uh, engaged to help uh, make the case on Capitol Hill. Do you, um, do you leverage your organization to work with others to help push policy change? And we did that both uh, in creating AmeriCorps and then in 2003 when it was under attack and almost was eliminated, but with an 80% funding cut. And so uh, what I've been trying to encourage people is to think about, can you be an action tank? Can you try to leverage whatever you're working on to make a larger systems change? Um, and I think virtually any nonprofit can do this. I have also been encouraging policymakers, go find the innovative breakthrough organizations and how can you learn from them to change policy? There's a whole burgeoning social entrepreneurship movement now. There isn't a problem uh, in America that isn't being solved by somebody with an interesting, unique, new idea. And so it goes both ways. Policymakers also have to find them out. We've got a slew of them right here in Boston. I mean, there's not just City Year. There's Youth Build. There's Year Up, which is doing breakthrough workforce development. There's Citizen Schools. Uh, there's what Chris Gabrielli's been doing on extended learning time. There's Bell. There's Horizons for Homeless Children. You name the issue. And a lot of them right here in, in Massachusetts. There's an organization, an entrepreneur, that's come up with a breakthrough idea. And somehow we have to close this gap between the people who make policy and the people who uh, uh, who are doing the direct work. And I would just close with um, a, a story of, of somebody I met, and I'm just, I, I was reminded of him, and I was thinking about yesterday. Uh, there's a great group in Western Massachusetts called Soldier On. Um, and it's a, it's a shelter. It's more than a shelter for homeless veterans. It's an action tank. 
they have come up with a way to support veterans who are homeless to the point where they now, uh, as they spend time with Soldier On, they get to the point where they can actually own their, uh, their own home, um, their own small condominium. And I went to visit them a few years ago uh, just because I'd heard about this and I was interested in this issue. And, and I did a roundtable with a bunch of the veterans there, and they shared their stories. And one of them, uh, named George, I'll never forget, uh, he was a Marine. And he still sort of had that, uh, that ramrod straight uh, physique, short haircut, rugged uh, physique of, of his Marine Corps days. And he told his story. And he said, you know, I was a Marine, and after my period of service, I fell into addiction. And then I lost my job, and then I lost my home, and then I lost my family, and then I finally ended up in jail. Lost everything. This is someone who had served our country as a Marine and just fell into hard times. Now, Soldier On goes after the hardest cases, so they actually go to the prisons and try to find veterans and say, we want to help you as you get out. So as George was getting out of prison, Soldier On came and said, will you come stay with us? And the other thing about Soldier On is it's a real empowerment model. The veterans actually run the facility. And George was actually the Marine who took me around. He was the lead uh, veteran running that facility. And so I said to him, well, George, what, what happened? Um, How did you turn your life around? And he said, well, you know, Alan, through Soldier On, I learned to give and not take. I learned that I was needed. I learned that I could be part of a community again. I learned that once I was, uh, had that feeling of being important again and through service, that I could make my big dreams real. And so what I've learned, and I was just struck by that, and I visited again a couple years later, and George proudly showed me his own uh, apartment that he now owned as part of the Soldier On model. And it's a real action tank. It's been, uh, it's a combination of public and private funds. It's been recognized. The, um, nationally, they're looking at it as how do you replicate this. Um, so it's a real example of what I'm talking about. Um, but the larger message for me is that if we can tap this spirit of service, which I believe is there, the only reason City Year happened, the only thing, anything that I've been a part of has happened is because there is a spirit of public service. I mean, when we started, we were kids right out of school, 26 years old, and people like Ira Jackson and Wynn Knowlton, uh, the mayor eventually, others took big risks on us, investing money, investing their time, putting their brands, their own personal brands and brands and institutions behind us. And it was hard in the beginning. A lot of people said no at first, but enough people said yes. And what I learned is that there is the spirit of public service out there. And if we're willing to tap into it and respond to it and encourage it, as you experienced doing three tours in AmeriCorps, um, we can make our big dreams real. We can do anything. And we can reach the potential that I think is inherent uh, in our community and our country. Thank you all very much. Let me, if I may, ask the first question, then we'll open it up to, uh, to the group. Is there a piece of legislation that you would like to see passed that would facilitate this vision? Uh, yes. In fact, it's already been passed. I'd just like to see it funded. Um, I worked very hard, as Alex said, after I left City, I created an organization called Be the Change to do advocacy work. Um, and this was part of my journey. Uh, in 2003, the AmeriCorps program was almost wiped out. And I helped organize a coalition called Save AmeriCorps, and we succeeded in not only saving it, but, but raising such a ruckus that we uh, held President Bush to his promise to grow AmeriCorps by 50% after 9-11. So we went from an 8% cut to a 50% increase. 
And that's what got me thinking, okay, um, I want to devote myself to the larger movement, not just building city here. And so through Service Nation, we worked very closely with Senator Kennedy and Senator Hatch on what became the Kennedy Serve America Act. We got 79 votes in the Senate. Our goal was to get a majority of Republicans so we could say this is truly bipartisan. And even though Mitch McConnell opposed it, we built a huge coalition of organizations. We got 79 votes in the Senate, 275 votes in the House. We organized an event where both Senator McCain and, and then Senator Obama came together and both signed on to the bill. It was the only thing they agreed on during the whole campaign. And, uh, and Obama made a priority and passed in the first 100 days. And, and that legislation authorizes AmeriCorps to grow to 250,000 people a year. So after four years, there'd be a million people who've done it. And we thought if we could get this done, eventually this will just get to scale. Um, and it started moving. But then after the elections in 2010 and the Republicans took over the House, uh, they are now proposing to zero fund it again and wipe out AmeriCorps. So we're sort of back to that. Uh, and it's stalled. Um, last year there were 582,000 applications to AmeriCorps. So what is the, what is the political opposition argument against this? It's twofold. Um, one is that uh, we can't afford it. Just it's just too much money, um, you know. Yes, it's money, but it's not that much money, um, especially when you think of the jobs crisis that we're in, especially for young people. Um, AmeriCorps, on average, is about twelve thousand dollars a person because some are full time and some are part time. So, you could have you know hundred thousand people put them to work for a little over a billion dollars, and that's a lot of money. But in this context of this jobs crisis, and also they're all doing great work. That's one. The other sort of the old argument is we shouldn't be paying volunteers. But, I mean, you worked full-time. Full-time for 12000 Yeah. Okay. I, I so actually had the experience of, uh, some, uh, of uh, processing my own pay stuff. So, so I saw the invoice. I was like, well, this is 6000 a year. This is 6000 that this nonprofit is paying. This is 6000 that the government's paying. You can make an argument, yes, we've got to keep budgets low, but... Uh, it's point zero 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 one percent of the entire picture. Right. So, so you were living on $12,000. Now, if you hadn't gotten that stipend, would you have been able to do it? No. Yeah, there's no way. And so there's this argument, you know, we shouldn't pay volunteers, but <coughs> we pay our military. That's an all-volunteer force. We pay our first responders. Um, you know, this was part of our design from the beginning. If you don't have, for people who are working full-time, if you don't have some kind of stipend, then it's only going to be, the only people who can serve would be the very rich, and that's not national service. Um, those are the two main arguments, uh, but I think part of it is just that it's invisible. People don't realize. I mean, when I tell people over half a million people were turned away last year, they don't believe it, especially in this time. And so part of what I'm doing now is trying to um, you know, raise more awareness um, to say this is an idea whose time has come. And are there any Republicans who, you know, see the value in this in a way that, uh, that overwhelms the political partisanship? Well, we had Senator Hatch, who worked very closely with Senator Kennedy, um, who was really championing it. Uh, unfortunately, after his colleague, Senator Bennett, lost to a Tea Party candidate, um, when he ran for it, and he was being criticized, Hatch was, for his work with Kennedy on a number of issues, he sort of dialed back a little bit. Um, uh, McCain's been a big supporter. Um, you know, going way back. Uh, I'm working on a new e effort now at the Aspen Institute with Walter Isaacson uh, and General Stanley McChrystal on trying to, uh, to bring more support to this. It's interesting. A number of military leaders, not just McChrystal, but Jim Jones, Mike Mullen, uh, Jack Gardner, and Dunwoody, um, 
Condoleezza Rice, uh, Adeline Albright, Stephen Hadley, others are embracing the idea of national service. And I think that may be a new wedge for us. They're embracing it for a couple reasons. One, after more than 10 years of war, feeling like, you know, 1% of the country, people who are in the military or have military families, have made all the sacrifice. How do we get this ethic of service and sacrifice across the country um, through civilian national service? That's what's brought a lot of these military leaders to the table. And secondly, these veterans. We're going to have 2 million veterans that come out of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they're seeing national service as both a vehicle to engage veterans in civilian life and continue to serve. There's a great group called The Mission Continues, started by a former Navy SEAL who served in Iraq to have veterans do a period of civilian national service when they come home as a transition, and they're getting phenomenal rights, phenomenal results, and also as a way to help support veterans. I mean, because the veterans coming back, you know, higher levels of homelessness, of unemployment, of PTSD, of suicide, and a lot of these military leaders are seeing national service as a way to provide more support. So I'm hoping that through this new Aspen effort, uh, and the one group that Republicans, Democrats, everybody respects and will listen to are military leaders. So I'm hoping we can instill more support through that. Let me open it to the students who are present who have questions. If you have a question, just raise your hand. Yes. So I grew up um, in a, I went to a Catholic school and they had required service hours for us. And I know that's not probably a model that could, could be replicated easily in the public school system, but it instilled it, a sense of public service in me really early on because we had these requirements that we had to accomplish just like our grades. And so by the time you went through high school, you had to have 100 hours, I think. Um, and I wonder if there's any initiatives to get younger people involved earlier on so that it, it's more something they think about when they're adults. What's your name? Carly. Carly. And where'd you grow up? Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis. Um, uh, the answer is yes, and um, you know I'd love to see a system where it is integrated in our public schools. Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, when she was Lieutenant Governor of Maryland years ago, she actually Maryland became the first state to institute a statewide service learning requirement, um, where every student had to do I think it was 50 hours before they graduated. Um, you know, I, I when my daughter was two, um, I brought her to the City of Servathon, which is a one-day big event we do now. She couldn't do much as a two-year-old, but. Um, she's been serving ever since. Her favorite place to go is Crayons to Crayons, um, this giving factory. Uh, and, and so we've been doing it with our kids, um, but it's not in the public schools. Um, and so I do think this ethic can start really early, certainly as, as young as first grade even. Um, and we have to institutionalize that. And uh, I'm a big believer in service learning. And I, I actually think in schools, look, we require English, we require math, we require other things. If we make it service learning, sometimes people put in a requirement and then they don't really follow up on it. So it, it gets, it gets um, delegitimized because people, you know, they'll pick up trash or they'll do stuff. But if you make it service learning where it's part of the curriculum and, you know, you have to reflect on it, you have to get behind the issue that you're working on, it's terrific. And as you said, Carly, it helped to instill your values at a very young age. So, so who's against that? Um... Well, some people are against it because nobody wants requirements for anything. Other people say it's a money issue, um, again, because to do it right, you've got to have at least a, a, a teacher who's a coordinator. Um, it'll take some resources to do it right, and people feel like, well, they've got to get you know, the basics down. Um, but we've also, we're not teaching civics in schools anymore. I mean, we're losing our sense of, 
of citizenship and um, and engagement. So it's a great way to do that. But um, I mean, you're a you're a testament yourself. So we need people like you to speak up and say, yes, we need this. Did you have a question? Actually, I wanted just to also have you uh, realize the impact that Alan Casey has had even in the world <laughs> around national service because I am French, as you can hear. <laughs> and <laughs> I met uh, Alan Casey in 94 something. I was younger <laughs> at that time. And he inspired us through an Echo and Green Fellow, American Echo and Green Fellow, whom I met at that time. He, she was the one who made me discover City Year. And so we got inspired by their Michael and Alan vision around National Youth Service, by the experience of City Year and see, seeing those kids like so involved in the community. And we created the equivalent or kind of of City Year as an organization in France, which is called Unicité, it means United for the City. I will make it short just to, for you to realize that bes beyond the impact that he has had through here in the States, he got us to do the same and in the same way of thinking in an action tank kind of action tank way of thinking. So we started very small in '95 with 24 kids in Paris, mm -hmm. and we grew it. It took us years to have a national equivalent of your Americo, like a national public policy. But we do have now a national public policy with a legislation which has been voted by unanimous vote from the whole National Assembly by the former um, government of France and re-approved by the new one. So it's like a global, uh, every year it's fighting for the budget like you have here. But I mean now we have like 30 southern young people every year involved in, uh, in service in France in a country where volunteering service, I'm very surprised I don't have that in schools. My vision of US was like they serve from like day three. And in France, they don't serve at all. They pay tax and they don't serve. So we're not in a culture of volunteering. So I will go to my question, just for you to realize that just what, two people with this organization maybe impacted here, but they also had an impact further. And maybe it's a way of so for you to think how you could share more globally in the world the good ideas of uh, action tanks and of public policy that could inspire other countries. And you could have citizens like students here who could like in their own country get inspired and try. I mean, I was more inspired by doing the stuff like a social entrepreneur, but then convincing the, po the politics. I could have gone into politics. I had so many propositions, but I wanted to stay on the ground and, and make the connection is so difficult. So I was noting, even though I did experience all this, how you make the connection between the public policy and the stuff you run for 2,000 people. I have 2,000 in my own organization. But how you propose something apply, uh, applicable for hundreds of thousands of young people. So the transformation from the action tank to the public policy for me to formulate is really uh, difficult. And I think it, at the Kennedy School, maybe I didn't see any class on that. But I think it's something maybe you, you could do because it's really difficult. I mean, you are like you have a model running for one thousand people, but how do you do it for one million people without losing? It goes to my first question: without losing the quality, because what I experience now, and this is my question of your input. I know we are going to meet soon, but. 
for the others it could be interesting. How do you do when you succeed in having your action tank transforming into a public policy, so it's scaling through public policy, but now you have to kind of reinvent the action tank. This is what I, I experienced. We have been a, a, like a pilot, so the pilot convinced the politics, so now you have a public like agency funding young people all over in all organizations. In France, we had only one, us. Right. Here you have a bunch of others, so maybe it's it's different, but like, how do you transform even your everyday action to, to still me, uh, remain useful to influence mm -hmm. the future public policy around that issue? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's moving to be the change into a more like think tank or lobbying, I don't know, but like input on that right. would be very useful for me. Um, well, it's great and to how you, you achieve to have quality, the quality you had in an action tank to the, in the national scale. Right. Um, well, it's great to see you, Maria, and, and uh, I love ONECT. I've visited several times, and it's amazing what you've accomplished. Um, in some ways, you've been more successful than we have. I mean, to have 30,000 people in France. Um, it's a much smaller country than America. We've only got 76,000 in AmeriCorps now. So, uh, and also given from where you started with, you know, not a, a big sort of volunteer ethic. Um, any of you who go to Paris, you should visit any city. You'll be totally inspired. Um, but it also just reaffirmed, this is a, it's a global ethic. I spent a year, almost a year, traveling around the world back in 95, 96 to sort of study this idea globally and the rise of civil society. And everywhere we went, we went to 25 different countries all over the world. You find people doing service, they may call it different names, but it's, it's part of human nature, I think. Um, to respond to your question, I think you have to keep evolving um, you know, as an action tank. I mean, it's interesting, City has gone through an evolution where when we started, we did all kinds of service because as an act, there, there wasn't a national service program. There were a few, but we wanted to show that national service could work on the environment, so we helped start the first recycling program in the city of Boston. We wanted to show that we could do urban gardening, so we did that. We wanted to show that we could work with senior citizens, so we did that. But over time, because uh, we want to show this is this could be a, an answer for almost any problem. Over time, we've focused our service now. We, we learned that where we have the biggest impact was in schools, and in particular in, in the, the toughest, highest poverty schools, helping kids succeed and fighting the high school dropout rate. So we've narrowed our service focus. Because what national service has to prove now, at first it was just get this idea off the ground. Now it's, can it solve big problems? Because the only way people are going to spend the money on this is, is if they feel like, well, it can be a solution to problems. So we've evolved. And so I think you have to sort of look at the context of what's going on in France uh, and what's needed and how do you evolve that way. In terms of uh, you know, my own journey, I also think that at a certain point, you have to bring all those organizations together all the different national service organizations and form a coalition um, to help keep pushing, either to push for more funding or to push for the next iteration of the legislation. Um, I've become a big believer in what's now being called uh, collective impact work, um, which is sort of a new phenomenon where I, as much as I believe in individual organizations, I think most solutions are going to come from a combination of organizations working together. Um, so I would also look at that. Maybe that's what you should do when you go home, after your experience oh, here at the Kennedy School. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Hi. Um, great to see you again. Um, I was just wondering um, about service education in modern China. Um, I did uh, some service teaching in other countries um, with a self-designed global curriculum, including Chinese teaching, and uh, one aspect of this community service. Um, and in China, the def 
mission of community service and especially in high school, um, it's it's somewhat different, you know, culturally and also because the competition atmosphere is very competitive. So a lot of students come here to study in high school or some of them study in middle school. Um, so we're trying to find a way to kind of incorporate that difference between um, the time they were in China and here. Uh, I don't know if you have any insight to share about helping international students um, come from China to the US, which I'm sometimes helping out one-on-one -on -one family to family uh, to the school communities here. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I'll be happy to build one for you. Great. Uh, how is it different in China? How, well, how would you define the difference? Well, they uh, incorporated in the required curriculum um, before they come to the U.S. because they wanted to be aligned with the, you know, um, so the education expectation. So incorporating community service in the curriculum. Yes, some yeah. of the schools. Some of the some schools. Some of the international yeah. schools. The, the public schools, they are slowly, you know, getting um, the sense of it. Not because the students may not want to come to school or so um I guess I have a couple thoughts you would know better than I do uh, I was in China in December of 1995 um, I had a wonderful time there uh, have you come across Tony Sage at all while you've been here at the Kennedy School he runs the Ash Center. He was running the Ford Foundation in China when I was there. He knows more about China than anybody. So um, I'd encourage you. I mean, he's brilliant. I'll just give an example. So Vanessa and I, my wife, um, we were traveling the world studying civil society and service and where new ideas were coming from and in particular what were young people thinking about. And we went and through some friends in the Clinton administration, we met with the embassy in China. We didn't even have an ambassador at that point. We were sort of in a fight with the Chinese. But we met with embassy staff, and they said, oh, there's nothing going on in civil society in China. It's all government. It's all the Communist Party. And you're not going to learn anything here. So just spend your time sightseeing, basically. We didn't believe that. And then we went to see Tony. And he said, actually, there's a lot happening. And the Ford Foundation was funding it. Now, it was different. All the organizations had to have government sponsors. So it wasn't like in America where you just start a nonprofit. But uh, he said even the Communist Party was recognizing the need to start building some civil society. They were at that time they were introducing com competition within the party for local elections, because they saw that without it corruption would happen. And um, and since it's grown, I mean Ashoka is now in China, which is sponsoring social entrepreneurs. Teach for America is now in China, um, with uh, an equivalent program in China. So again, this is a global phenomenon, and I think. Uh, you know, leaders in China recognize that uh, even in China, you need three legs of that stool. You need the government, you need the private sector, which thrives in China, and you need civil society. So, um, so what I would encourage you to do is take advantage of whatever you can learn from here and bring it home and try to. Uh, um, and again, China as a developing country, it needs people to do. I mean, there's a huge education gap, for example. I mean, especially in the rural areas and the urban areas, and everybody wants to be educated. Um, there are other huge needs. There's environmental needs. So I think that um, there's opportunities to uh, take whatever you can learn from here and adapt it. Um, and again, as I saw, people are people. There's a strong service ethic in China, and if you give people the opportunity to serve, they will. Um, and I think as China evolves, 
the role of civil society, the role of NGOs, the role of the nonprofit sector is only going to increase in importance um, because it helps to, to, to be that balance between the government and the private sector. So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but um, I would also take advantage of the fact of other Chinese students that are here and meet with them and strategize and say, what can we do when we go home? How do we take what we learned here and adapt it? How do we stay connected? Um, you're in a very unique opportunity to be here in school. Um, you know, just in my class, I've had students meet each other from the same country who'd never met before until they took my class um, and realized, well, we have a lot in common. So uh, I'd encourage them, strategize while you're here because it's hard to make change um, as one person. So I, I take advantage of that also. Yeah, there's a good social entrepreneurship allegations in China that we are yesterday as well. And some of the students want to come here for internship. Terrific. Richard. Alan, uh, Richard. Yes. Um, I want to press you, and I want, but I want to do it in a friendly way. Go ahead. But it's, but it's a deep problem for me at this stage in my life. I grew up sure. the son of an Episcopal clergyman, and so I grew up in a world of volunteer service. My father was, though, very careful to encourage both prototypes of what becomes Habitat for Humanity, which is individual and small group volunteerism, but also in figuring out how to mobilize congregations to lobby city councils for federal housing funds for the elderly, etc. In listening to so much talk about volunteerism today, I don't hear the connection made with the role of government in a positive way. I hear an affirmative connection between uh, volunteerism and corporations, with corporations as funders and as sources of volunteers, but no deep analysis of how it is that we've come to this situation. Further, I, you're comment about in France we pay taxes but we don't have volunteers. In so general I'm happy to pay taxes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> here's, 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 here's what we know analytically, which is, the, which is problematic for me. This is the country in the industrial West that has the highest level of volunteers, the highest level of religiosity, the highest level of charitable giving. It has the highest levels of poverty, the highest levels of crime, the highest levels of violence. Two hundred years of an emphasis on volunteerism has, has yet given us this. Can we think more sharply about this triangle between markets, governments, and civil society than the idea that by focusing on civil society, we can supersede the problems of governments and markets? I, I so would like to see that engaged to move this whole discussion on. And not to undermine the effort, but to get clear about what we're doing where there are serious dividing right lines. Um, Is I, that a fair... Absolutely not, Rich, and I appreciate your pushing. Uh, let me say a couple of things. First of all, I'm a believer in volunteerism. I'm a bigger believer in national service. Mm -hmm. And the difference is, uh, I've found qualitatively, if you spend a year full-time, you could speak to this, if you spend at least a year full-time, deeply engaged, it's different than doing a Habitat. I love Habitat. I've done it. You know, doing a Habitat bill even for a week. Um, I find that when people do a year of national service full-time, uh, they turn on what I like to call their justice nerves. I think it's part of human nature. If you experience injustice directly, um, you want to do something about it. And if you spend a year, you actually find out you can. You can, you know, if you're working in inner city under-resourced schools, you can actually help kids learn to read and do their math and graduate, for example. Um, or if you're working in homeless shelters, you pick the issue. And 
what I found is once you turn a justice nerve on, and, and it doesn't get turned on by watching TV or surfing the internet, it, it, it gets turned on by experience. Um, it's hard to turn it off. So that's why I would like to see you know a million people a year able to do AmeriCorps um, because I think it turns on more justice nerves. Now, one of the problems is that because it is government funded, there is such a prohibition on political activity um, that uh, one of the concerns I've had is that, uh, and also people are so turned off by what's going on in Washington in particular because they feel it's so dysfunctional that people feel like, well, you know, forget about government, forget about politics, I'll just go do service because I know I can make a difference there. That's a concern. It's part of the reason I ran for office myself was to send a message that politics are important. At the end of the day, uh, I love city year. I'd love to see a city year team in every public school in America. It won't solve the education problem. What's going to solve the education problem are the decisions that our policymakers make about, you know, what levels of funding, what levels of standards, what levels of quality, teacher training, effectiveness, all that stuff. Um, so you have a point, and I think, uh, you know, that's why I've been encouraging people. That's why I believe in service learning, so that people have to do reflection. Well, what, you know, where do these problems come from? If you're, you know, say volunteering at a homeless shelter or a food bank, what are the root causes? Um, uh, we have found with our study of our alumni, which we did about eight years ago, that our core members, after they graduate, they vote at much higher rates than their peers. They uh, volunteer at much higher rates, they, even though they're not in Syria anymore, they continue to volunteer. They take leadership positions at much higher rates. They contribute, even though a lot of them go into social service and don't get paid, they contribute uh, to political and other causes at four times the rate of their peers. So there is a, an impact. Um, but, but I think you have... Just, uh, just to be careful, though. That's a good example of where I want a more careful discussion because you understand right away that that's a bad apples and oranges comparison because first there's a self-selection process in terms yes. of who applies. Second, there's a high screening process for those people to pass through to get into the program. So you've already got a double selection bias in the people who are going to become your alumni who are more, more, more than likely to perform at all these. Well, we actually did the, the, the comparison group. You're absolutely right, but the comparison group were people who applied to sit here and didn't do it. So okay. for, for, you know, for various reasons. That's, that's, that's good to know. Um, but, but still, but I, I share your concern, yeah. and, uh, and I think that, you know, I do believe in this concept. I think if we actually got it at scale, um, there would be a transformational effect. But, uh, but I think people have to understand that See, I think the solution to our problems are going to be a combination of government, the nonprofit sector, the private sector, working together, all fueled by citizens. And that each has a, has a role to play, and we have to figure out what's the right role. Um, but I, I agree with you. It's, um, it can't just be done through volunteerism. It's not going to do it. Um, we can see it in our, you know, just where we're at, as you pointed out. We've got the highest rates of poverty uh, in a generation. And... I hope that people who come to this institution leave it with that sense of greater social justice and, and a determination we have to find the answers. And we have to have a sense of outrage at the level of the injustice that's going on. At least I've seen that with senior core members of Corps. You could speak to this. Um, you know, and you should speak to it, yeah, actually, from your own experience. I, mean, I want to say about um, the role of corporations. I think it's, what's really interesting is both the AmeriCorps programs I did, the one in California... I was working in Oakland, California, across public charter and um, regular public schools. And one of the key points was that we were bringing in business volunteers from the Bay Area coming in to work with students every day, I'm sorry, every week. And now I'm also in the role, I'm doing that volunteer role this year while I'm studying. And there's something that you, you just, you, 
that business experience, that background that they had, that us nonprofit types didn't have, that that was huge, and they were actually being able to go to corporate boardrooms. When I came here to do AmeriCorps with Citizen Schools, what I started to see was, it was a, about a year ago, there was an event at the Microsoft Nerd Center. So the students were learning over 10 weeks, they were learning computer programming technology. Huge gap between the ability, I mean, the students we're working with, they just don't have anyone who does this. And so what I started to see was that it wasn't just writing a check from these companies, but some of these officials actually got to the point of coming into a school and actually seeing what it took to get these students to the finish line on on technology. They were staying up till two. They were worrying about how their kids okay, were doing. Let me, let me so I'm just saying those kind of efforts. No, 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 Again, I, I try to teach some of this in a course on religion, politics, and public policy. So there's a 200-year history of this that involves evangelicalism that starts as Protestant but becomes American. It's sort of post-Protestant. It's part of our American nature. I also have to say, I'm an Episcopalian, so we're skeptical about evangelists. We're sort of the, the Christians who keep our hands in our pockets and don't wave them around. That doesn't mean, again, that I'm opposed to what you say. My brother-in-law was at Sarah Lee and now is the CFO of KIPP. So I understand that there are many anecdotes of individuals making this transformation. What I'm trying to gently say is you would help your case with so many people by becoming more serious about measuring impact in a way that actually tries to discern the scope of impact, the number of people who don't become activists or gradually deteriorate with a quick half-life after this experience or remain in an all-volunteerist mode. I mean, yep. the difference between Jane Addams and Francis Perkins, the difference between George Washington Carver and W.E. Du Bois are hugely mm -hmm. important, and we need to help our young people understand that there are tensions between those schools, that they can't all be paved over by enthusiasm and a decent and a claim of human decency. That won't do the trick. No, I like that. And what I would say to that quickly is that, so one of the things I did here at the Kennedy School was this fallout for management. I was writing, I was consulting for a, the same nonprofit that I worked for in sure. California. I was saying, okay, look, we know this program works. <clears throat> if you give these students four years of entrepreneurship education, take them on college tours, you give them all these experiences, but not every student's getting this and we have to work about the selection issues. So. I'm working with them, and I'm hoping I'm working, I'm working with them this summer to get them to get the government streams, because ne right now it can only be in California, it can only be in Boston where there's this philanthropic base. I want it to go to the south. I want it to go to these low resource areas. So I want to build this government revenue model. If we can show these results, which is if you do four years of this program, 95 plus percent you're going to college, and we're talking kids who are you know years behind. We're talking intervening in high school. So we got to get results. And what I'll say is one of the things I really want to do is also have them do their first random control trial because they right now they're doing self-selection. So it's the kids who are interested in this, they sign up. But I'm saying the schools we're working in, we could just do it randomized. We could just respond is what we have to do though, so to change the way that schools work in data collection. So all these programs are working in say in Boston public schools, but they can't actually tell what their impact is because the data sharing isn't good enough. So so I think that yes, you need to have these results, but then the next step is how do we get this better? And, I'm sorry to say we're out of time. This, this has been very interesting, Alan. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you all.